Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdoms and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. In episode one, we took a quick look at Aldous Huxley's life and philosophies, some of the influences of philosophies like John Dewey, uh, and how these influences all kind of boil into probably his most detailed problem novel, Point Counterpoint. There are so many well-developed characters in this one that it's really difficult to talk about them all. Uh, so for the sake of clarity and focus, we're really going to track the development of a few. Walter and Philip, who we were introduced in detail last episode, and of whom Huxley has attributed himself. And you think about that, two very opposing characters that really does say something about the complexity of the author, for sure. Uh, we'll also focus on Spandrel, who's my personal favorite, and to a lesser extent, Burlap. Uh, what's great, though, is that in looking at these particular narratives, you still end up really talking about the rest of the uh, side characters and secondary characters with really enough sufficient detail that you get the sense of that human zoology that's being built. I also love Huxley's tendency to weave the narratives together like the Bach Fugue from last week. Uh, there's really interesting stream-of-consciousness elements that totally elude you as a reader unless you really slow down and pay attention to the structure. If a character is reading a certain book at the end of one of the scenes, there's usually a character acting out or going somewhere or doing something that's related tangentially to that. But I think what gets most lost about point-counterpoint in the reading of the novel is that people often forget that it's satire in a lot of ways. I think that it's probably the fault of people who read Huxley for one or the other of Brave New World or Do uh, Doors of Perception alone. If all you know of Huxley is Doors of Perception, and you have nothing else to go on, no understanding of his life, or the purpose behind his works as a collection, then very clearly Huxley is a drug-loving hippie of the 60s. I mean, he tripped out to LSD on the way out while he was dying, right? Drugs! Um, couple that with reading nothing else in his career except Brave New World, forgetting that really Brave New World is a dystopian novel. And all of a sudden, your suspicions are very clearly true. Even when things suck, the answer is drugs. Uh, this kind of reading that one might attribute to somebody like Jim Morrison, uh, who named his, door, uh, his band The Doors after being really heavily influenced by these texts, uh, or somebody like Jim Morrison who used drugs as an escape from the evils of life and ended up dying in France of heart failure as a result of unknown causes. Uh, but most probably, you know, this is definitely heroin overdose, I think. Uh, for Huxley, the drugs, though, were not escape. If you read his final novel, Island, you get a pretty clear sense of what he's trying to get at. I mean, really, a critical reading of Doors of Perception and its companion of Heaven and Hell would, would give you that. But at any rate, Huxley's perennialism advocates the type of enlightenment he's seeking here is a middle ground between truth sought by all world religions, the stable background that all the templates of the various philosophies seem to cover up bits and pieces of for an imperfect picture, and in some ways, what language, as we talked about in the last episode, and the limits of perception brought about by spatial reality and further divided by linguistic rigidity, can be without those constraints. He realized that Yogans had it right, but that contemplation and meditation to that extent in everyday life, especially the everyday life of kind of the materialistic capitalist world, and you've got to think, he's in America at this point, uh, this would be pretty difficult, if not impossible. So shortcut, mescaline. Uh, it was a controlled experiment. It was aimed at breaking down the mental barriers and seeing each moment as itself without those barriers to language and temporal constraint and expectation. It was a shortcut, he said, uh, a way of getting a sense of what it could be like, but imperfectly, uh, without lasting. 
But the striving for that kind of open-minded clarity, for the heightened experience of reality, that's really what he wanted. John Dewey, unrelatedly, I think, advocates that art's kind of that experience, too, as it lives within temporal and spatial constraints because it's physical, uh, but gets to bend a lot of those rules. Huxley gets away with this in Point-Counterpoint because we as readers can be in multiple places at once, seeing all the views concurrently, all the templates for life layered on top of each other. So maybe through all that, even though it can be confusing and in a lot of ways noise, maybe if we try, we can get at something of a broader view of life beyond the narrow limits of our own. Very often, people read Point-Counterpoint uh, and credit Mark Rampion with having the answer to the problem of the novel. It's really not without reason. His message is probably the most consistently yelled and unwavering of any character of view in the novel. In fact, he rants. And it's the same rant literally every time he talks. Uh, like I said in episode one, Rampion was loosely based on Huxley's friend and colleague, English writer D.H. Lawrence. Many characters in the novel, particularly Philip, show a lot of reverence for Rampion's way of life, his consistency, and seeming stability. Unlike most characters in the novel, Rampion is married, and his relationship with his wife is actually stable, and dare I say, happy? Uh, it's weird in the context of this one, where all the marriages seemingly are unhappy, that most of the non-married relationships, the affairs, the relationships even with parents... Uh, I wonder if the relationship between Mark and Mary are meant to be kind of the forward contrast, uh, in particular to the relationship between Eleanor and Philip. And it's not to say that Eleanor and Philip's marriage is bad. It's clear that they both really care about each other. Um, there is love and there is support in some way and trust in that relationship, but that it's missing something. And really that something is a compromising uh, communication. I know it's probably pseudo-psychology or philosophy or whatnot, but I can't help thinking of the love languages with Philip and Eleanor, and wonder if some lack of communicated need is part of that. So there are these five love languages, ways people express love and ways people want to receive it. Quality time, acts of service, uh, gift giving, words of affirmation, and physical touch. And just because you give a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that you receive the same way. For example, I'm definitely a quality time person. That's how I want somebody to show that they care for me. If you want to spend time with me, I don't even care if we're doing anything. We're just being there and you're, you're making time for me. That's it. That's all I want. But I express love through acts of service. Eleanor, I think, is definitely a words of affirmation girl. She wants Philip to express his love for her to verbalize the romance. Her desire is for that outward expression. Which is why later on in the novel, she asks him to write a novel about two people who fall in love romantically. She wants to see his expression of it, even if it isn't for her directly, because her assumption is that uh, the understanding of love that he has will, of course, somehow be based on their marriage, and thus, in a way, the novel that he writes will be indirectly about them. Contrastingly, I think Philip might be also a quality time. He's cool to just sit with her, to go and travel with her, and say nothing. Uh, or just talk about anything, even if it's scientific, objective, detached, and unemotional as it is. But this is his expression of love for her. That being with her. That's it. It doesn't need saying. It just is. But unfortunately, without conscious understanding of all of this, or discussion, or compromise, each is left wanting or annoyed. Anyway, Rampion and his wife Mary are kind of a weird symbiosis. It's almost annoyingly symbiotic. 
We meet them both in Chapter 8, sitting at Sabisa's with Maurice Spandrel, who we've heard of in other parts of the text at this point, although we've pretty much heard of all of them through conversations with other characters that are at the Tantamount Party. But Sabisa's really becomes the hub of the book for argumentation, political and philosophical debate, any depth of insight and reflection and metacognitive issues, of course. So if you've ever watched Seinfeld, and if you haven't, what? Go do that. Like, right now, please. It's on Hulu. Pause this now. Go binge it. Come back. But Sabisa's at this point is a lot like Tom's uh, restaurant where Seinfeld, Kramer, Elaine, and George meet up in the show. In fact, there's a particular episode that I like to show my students each year called The Subway. It's season three, episode 13. If you're going to go look for it, and you should, it's easily my favorite episode in the show. Uh, I even show it roughly around the same time of the novel as the example, you know, here is being employed. Uh, you've got the four characters of Seinfeld. They're sitting at the diner. They, they go about their plans for the day. Here's what we're doing. And then this episode sends them out into the city doing their own things, meeting all kinds of different situations and circumstances. But by the end of the episode, they always end up back at the diner and they share and converse, etc., each lives their separate lives and come to seemingly perfected harmonies only to break apart again. Sabisa's becomes the same kind of hub for each of the characters in Point-Counterpoint. The characters rotate. Uh, it's hardly ever the same crowd at Sabisa's when we see it. But it shows the interconnectedness of their narratives, the separate and distinct entities and personalities, and yet the subtle ways they're all intertwined, the subtle ways that they impress upon each other, manipulate, affect each other, but ultimately exert their own wills and work through their own stories. So re to return to Mark and Mary, who are dominant in the early parts of this first scene as he says in chapter 8, here they introduce what can definitely be construed as the problem Huxley seems to recognize and is elucidating both explicitly in the dialogue of the characters and implicitly in analyzing their individual and collective actions. It's Mary that says it first, although she's basically parroting her husband here, and he jokingly threats her for it immediately after. It's factories, it's Christianity, it's science, it's respectability, it's our education. They weigh on the modern soul. They suck the life out of it. This really is just the introduction to it, what becomes kind of the soapbox that Rampion stands on every time we see him for the rest of the novel. Uh, this idea that all the bureaucratic ways of life, especially when ascribing to each one in isolation, sucks the life out of the person caught up in it. It is interesting that he attributes the same level of faith and fervor to science as to religions. Uh, that each in isolation produces a less than human follower. In a lot of ways, Rampion is the advocate of John Dewey's philosophies here. Note that there's even the inclusion of the critique of education here. Chapter 9 gives us their background also. Mary came from a well-to-do family. Mark is not a well-to-do family. Each credits the other with making them better. For Mary, Mark provided the means for independence, for learning to do things for herself, for the philosophical exploration, for burgeoning liberty away from the traditional. Uh, and she felt stunting expectations of wealth. For Mark, Mary provides materially the wealth for that freedom, but more importantly, the willing audience for his ideas. This is where the symbiosis comes in. We see that Rampion's critique is almost as old as he is, so at least his melodic refrain, if, to keep kind of the musical illusions that we started in episode one alive, it's consistent. Here he talks about the poet William Blake, of whom there is clear admiration. Blake was civilized, he insisted. Civilized? Civilization is harmony and completeness, reason, feeling, instinct, the life of the body. 
Blake managed to include and harmonize everything. Barbarism is being lopsided. And we hearken back to the quotation from last episode. You can be a barbarian of the intellect as well as of the body, a barbarian of the soul and the feelings as well as of sensuality. Christianity made us barbarians of the soul, and now science is making us barbarians of the intellect. Blake was the last civilized man. Rampion's criticism sounds in ways similar to the critiques being made in the late 30s and 40s by existentialists like Jean-Paul Sartre. One of the fundamental observations of existentialism is the way in which man gets caught up in the bureaucracies, pigeonholed into identities that are as flat as a result. It's a vicious cycle, though, because the level of self-denial that comes with marrying one's identity to a single external source is Rampion's critiquing here. Self-denial is the fundamental principle of religion, uh, but it's not the only place that happens. Denial of the self, of a separate, free, distinct, and unique entity, happens with extreme materialistic views of science as well, especially those warped views of Darwinism, even advanced in this book by certain characters. In fact, Illage, who becomes the source of sarcastic crit uh, criticism here by Spandrel for this exact notion, uh, someone who touts science and scientific principles and survival of the fittest, and the fact that humans are just structurings of atoms and can be annihilated as readily, and yet as a communist, and all we have to do is look at his defense of the poor over and against the rich from last episode with Walter, and also the fact that he pays for his sick mother to continue living for the education of his siblings. So each view in isolation, if not uh, total self-denial of the extreme here, is at least some denial of the complexity of the self that is dynamically far more than one thing at a time. Like Blake, Rampion calls for us to, be rel uh, to live relatively to the life of the body and the life of the soul, the life of the intellect, and the life of the instinct. There are problems, though, with Rampion's view, but we'll hold on to that until we get a little bit more of his soapbox later on in the novel. The contrasting point to his philosophies, though, sits right across from him in Maurice Spandrel. Last episode, we noted that Philip and Walter sat as contrasting points to each other, and here we see Rampion and Spandrel doing the same. While Rampion advocates somewhat of an existential relativism imperfectly, Spandrel represents some interesting denials. Now, I have to preface this discussion, though, with the fact that I take serious issue with many of the literary critiques that are written about this book between the time it was published and about the time of Huxley's death. To be fair, not much else has been written about the book since, especially in the way that people specifically argue about Spandrel. And it's not just because Spandrel is my favorite character, although that's true. I promise it's not just some emotional bias here. There are two particular critiques about Spandrel that irk me. One is the psychoanalysis that was, I think, way overemployed by literary critics in the 60s that makes Spandrel out to be the classic case of Freud's Oedipus complex. We'll get back to this in subsequent episodes. And the second one is the way everyone attributes to his views some nihilism. That one, though, isn't completely without warrant. I can at least understand where people get the idea that, the, that he encompasses at least a little bit of what looks like a nihilist. Some of this can be seen kind of right away in this episode of Chapter 8, in this conversation he's having with Mark and Mary at Sabisa's. When Mary suggests that he'd be better off getting married, he questions this notion and responds, I'm like Socrates, making reference to the attributed phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living. I've been divinely appointed to corrupt the youth, the female youth particularly. I have a mission to educate them in the ways they shouldn't go. He gives details to this plot in chapter 10, 
in which he recounts carrying out some corruption of the youth on a girl named Harriet. And they're a little in awe of one, too, he added, remembering little Harriet's expression of scared admiration. One's respectable and yet so high class, so at ease and so at home among the great works and the great men, so wicked but so extraordinarily good, so learned, so well-traveled, so brilliantly cosmopolitan in West End. Have you ever heard a suburban talking about the West End? Yes, they're in awe of one, but at the same time, they adore. One's so understanding. One knows so much about life in general and their souls in particular. One isn't a bit flirtatious or saucy like ordinary men, not a bit. They feel they could trust one absolutely, and so they can for the first weeks. One has to get them used to the trap, quite tame and trusting, trained not to shine an occasional brotherly pat on the back or an occasional chaste uncle-ish kiss on the forehead. And meanwhile, one coaxes out their little confidences, one makes them talk about love, one talks about it oneself in a man-to-man sort of way, as though they were one's own age and as sadly disillusioned and bitterly knowing as oneself, which they find terribly shocking, though of course they don't say so, but oh, so thrilling, so enormously flattering. They simply love you for that. Well then, finally, when the moment seems ripe and they're thoroughly domesticated and no more frightened, one stages the denouement. Tea in one's rooms, one's got them thoroughly used to coming in with absolute impunity to one's rooms, and they're going to go out to dinner with one so that there's no hurry. The twilight deepens, one talks disillusionedly and yet freeingly about amorous mysteries, one produces cocktails, very strong, and goes on talking about it and gurgitate there absentmindedly without reflection. And sitting on the floor at their feet, one begins very gently stroking their ankles in an entirely platonic way, still talking about amorous philosophy as though one were quite unconscious of what one's hand were doing. If that's not resented and the cocktails have done their work, the rest shouldn't be difficult. The rest, as he gives here, consists in basically making Harriet his mistress, getting her to do things that might be viewed as risque by the society of the day, and then suddenly pulling the rug out from under her. A quick switch turning it around on her and making her feel ashamed of herself for doing the things that he's in essence trained her to do, making her fundamentally question herself and her morals and everything else, leaving her lost and disillusioned. Now you might be asking yourself, why on earth, after all of that, Spandrel is my favorite character? Sounds like a misogynistic psycho. After this explanation, Rampion bluntly tells him, The trouble with you, Spandrel, is that you really hate yourself. You hate the very source of your life, its ultimate basis. For there's no denying it. Sex is fundamental. And you hate it. Hate it. In a way, he's not wrong. But is completely wrong. Hate might not be the right word, and it's not sex specifically that he's taking issue with. Nor is it entirely women. It manifests deeper and differently than that. But looking at that description... What he's done here against poor little Harriet sounds pretty nihilistic, aimed at deconstructing the norms of civilized romance. He manipulates the common conceptions and courtesies of age and distance, of platonic relationships, of romantic relationships, of courtship, and of, let's face it, any common decency. It's a pretty horrid trap and a pretty gross plot. Without reasoning at all, it seems narcissistic and psychotic, emotionless and cold and calculatedly murderous. Generally, when he speaks out loud, he seems to be playing well that part, but even Rampion sees through that a little bit. 
In chapter 11, after Rampion and Mary leave the party at Sabisa's, Rampion turns to her and says, He's like a silly schoolboy, talking of of Spandrel. He's never grown up. Can't you see that? He's a permanent adolescent, bothering his head about all the things that preoccupy adolescents. Not being able to live because he's too busy thinking about death and God and truth and mysticism and all the rest of it. Too busy thinking about sins and trying to commit them and being disappointed because he's not succeeding. It's deplorable. The man's a sort of Peter Pan. Much worse even than Barry's discussing little abortion because he's got stuck at a sillier age. He's Peter Pan a la Dostoevsky, cum de Masset, cum the 90s, cum Bunyan, cum Byram, and the Marquis de Sade. Really deplorable. The more so because he's potentially a very decent human being. The conversation at Spisa's between Rampion and Spandrel fervently highlights their polarities, although I don't think it's clear, at least not early on, how they occupy varying standpoints. Especially because Spandrel's actions, at least from the outside, must scream of moral relativism that just isn't echoed by his words. A plot like the one he describes here in chapter 10 doesn't feel like the plot of an absolutist, which we come to find out in the process that Spandrel is. I promise I'll prove this over the course of the episodes. It's still a little too early for that yet. But his absolutism comes from a negative ideal. Rampion makes the comment in his discussion at Sabisa's that Jesus and scientists are vivisecting us, hacking our bodies to bits. Spandrel retorts with, But after all, why not? Perhaps they're meant to be vivisected. The fact of shame is significant. We feel spontaneously ashamed of the body and its activities, and that's a sign of the body's absolute and natural inferiority. This does not sound like the words of a nihilist. The body could not be inferior to the nihilist. It's a thing to be exalted and perfected, as Nietzsche's Ubermensch. So the question then, inferiority to what? Rampion picks apart. Absolute and natural rubbish. Shame isn't spontaneous to begin with. It's artificial. It's acquired. You can make people ashamed of anything. Agonizingly ashamed of wearing brown boots with a black coat or speaking with the wrong sort of accent or having a drop at one's end of one's nose. Of absolutely anything. The conversation at Sabisa's between Rampion and Spandrel fervently highlights their polarities, although I don't think it's clear, at least not early on, how they occupy varying standpoints, especially because Spandrel's actions, at least from the outside, must scream moral relativism that just isn't echoed by his words. A plot like the one here he describes in chapter 10 doesn't feel like the plot of an absolutist, which we come to find out in the process that Spandrel is. I promise I'll prove this over the course of the next few episodes. It's still a little too early yet. But his absolutism comes from a negative ideal. Rampion makes the comment in his discussion at Sabisa's that Jesus and the scientists are vivisecting us, hacking our bodies to bits. Spandrel retorts with, But after all, why not? Perhaps they're meant to be vivisected. The fact of shame is significant. We feel spontaneously ashamed of the body and its activities. That's a sign of the body's absolute and natural inferiority. This does not sound like the words of a nihilist. The body could not be inferior to a nihilist. It's a thing to be exalted and perfected as Nietzsche's Ubermensch. So the question then, inferiority to what? Rampion picks apart. Absolute and natural rubbish. Shame isn't spontaneous to begin with. It's artificial. It's acquired. You can make people ashamed of anything. 
agonizingly ashamed of wearing brown boots with a black coat or speaking with the wrong sort of accent or having a drop at the end of their noses of absolutely anything, including the body and its functions. But that particular shame's just as artificial as any other. The Christians invented it, just as the tailors in Seville Row invented the shame of wearing brown boots with a black coat. Spanrell even goes on to bring up the ideas of asceticism, the life of denial, and the mystical experience which Rampion laughs away as fantasy. Spandrel continues to question Rampion, making the argument that the modern era, which... Rampion seems to deeply oppose isn't something to oppose in his philosophy since everyone seems to be living the life of the materialistic body, dancing and partying, promiscuous and self-serving, but Rampion doesn't back down. It's just Christianity turned inside out, the ascetic contempt for the body expressed in a different way, contempt and hatred. That was what I was saying just now. You hate yourselves. You hate life. Your only alternatives are promiscuity or asceticism, two forms of death. This is such an astute observation, actually. And without knowing you can attribute it to Spandrel here, you might even miss it. I mean, I've read the book a hundred times, and this might really be the first time I'm consciously seeing what I'm seeing. That really is the beauty of the book, too. There's always something, regardless of how many times you've read it, that you can get out of a reading. Here is a recognition of the kind of absolutism being practiced by someone like Spandrel. That in essence proves that his plot over Harriet need not be a practice of nihilism. While it might look like it externally, we have the thoughts of Spandrel to bring doubt to that. It's clear he's looking for an ideal. He will give us some more explicitly later in the text, but he wants the ideal, the stability, the concrete, or if not the concrete, the definite. An answer. And really, not just an answer, but the answer. Rampion basically claims here that there are two ways of practicing a belief in an absolute, a god. The one way is the Christian way, the ascetic way of self-denial, uh, following the notions and tenets of a religious sect. The denial of the self in favor of the will of the God. To do so, though, requires faith and virtuous behavior built upon that faith. The promise of everlasting life, of enlightenment, of nirvana, follows the strict behavioral designs of such a faith, worked hard for, but achieved by the grace of God. The second way is to recognize the difficulty or attribute impossibility to the religious life. But this doesn't mean the existential rejection of the god or the belief in meaningless nothingness, which might often be seen as the obvious response to suffering that comes from such an ideal. It isn't a rejection of the ideal, it's a rejection of the call. The rejection of the god, but not as unreal, but as a rejection of his rejection, so to speak. Life is suffering and unfair, says the existentialist, sure. But the existentialist uses situations to thus get at proof that God isn't there. Spandrel may have at one point gone this route. In fact, there are many instances of existential phrasing that permeate his thoughts in little glimpses throughout the book. Maybe some moments of doubt, I don't know. But there isn't much denial here in this conversation with Rampion about the existence of an absolute. He couldn't posit asceticism, even as a thought experiment, or the wrongness or badness of his plot over Little Harriet, if there wasn't an absolute that provided the comparison for an action to be wrong. It's all relative, if it's all self-social construct, as Rampion seems to suggest here, then there is no such thing truly as wrong, thus no need for asceticism, mystical experience, or anything else. There's just this experience, and no god. Freeing, sure, but also scary. 
That means, then, that every experience is random, causeless, meaningless, and absurdly stupid. So, for whatever reason we haven't seen yet in the text, Spandrel wants that absolute. But the second way of self-denial here is to see oneself as bad, and thus to just be bad. To be angry at hopeless, uh, as the god has made you so, and to be just fated to being so. In a way, then, Spandrel recognizes his duty to take down the female species, to being bad, to testing the absolute. It's self-flagellation because of God, not the absence of one. Be damned. The second way is to recognize the difficulty, or attribute impossibility, to the religious life. But this doesn't mean an existential rejection of God, or the belief in meaninglessness, nothingness, which might often be seen as the obvious response to suffering that comes from such an ideal. It isn't a rejection of the ideal, it's a rejection of the call. The rejection of the God, but not as unreal, but a rejection of his rejection, so to speak. Life is suffering and unfair, says the existentialist, sure. But the existentialist uses situations to thus get at the proof that God isn't there. Spandrel may have gone this way at some point. In fact, there are many instances of existential phrasing that permeate his thoughts and little glimpses throughout the book. Maybe some points of doubt, I don't know. But there isn't much denial here in this conversation with Rampion, at least, about the existence of an absolute. He couldn't posit asceticism, even as a thought experiment, or the wrongness or badness of his plot over a little Harriet, if there wasn't an absolute that provided the comparison for an action to be wrong. If it's all relative, if it's social construct, as Rampion seems to suggest here, there is no such thing truly as wrong, thus no need for asceticism, mystical experience, or anything like that. There's just this experience, and no God. Freeing, sure, but also scary. That means, then, that every experience is random, causeless, meaningless, and absurdly stupid. So for whatever reason we haven't seen yet in the text, Spandrel wants that absolute. But the second way of self-denial here is to see oneself as bad, and thus to just be bad. To be angry at hopeless, as the god has made you to be so, and so just to be fated in being so. In a way, then, Spandrel recognizes his duty to take down the female species, to be bad, to test the absolute. It's self-flagellation because of the god, not the absence of one. Be damned. Really, though, Spandrel might be a little short-sighted, although I don't think anyone in the book makes this kind of suggestion specifically. I know he's looking for an absolute, and in several conversations he uses the idea of right and wrong as proof or justification, as here with Rampion and Mary. He does so again later on in talking to Lucy, which we'll get into a bit more deeply next episode, but for him, right and wrong comes along with the absolute ideal. There are, however, philosophies that call for objective morality without the absolute, without a god to dictate them but rather from the objectivity of the structures of experience, the objective material world, and our own perceptions. An example of this can be found in the philosophies of Immanuel Kant. Kant is a fun one. It's widely believed that he was one of the first professional philosophers, a philosopher who came with the endeavor to actually learn philosophy first, whereas many others came from science or religion or law. He was interested in both the rationalists and the empiricists, though those views contradict. He accepted both independently before realizing that, one, this is a bit of a paradox, and two, each was incomplete on its own, he thought. 
He became baffled by the inconsistencies of his own thought in this, and thus his master work, The Critique of Pure Reason, attempts to reconcile that. He called this his Copernican Revolution, like the scientific revolutionary move from geocentric to heliocentric models. Kant's critical idealism moved metaphysics from the external world to the inner world of the mind. He is, in a way, an almost direct response to David Hume, whose empirical philosophy shattered Western traditions, leaving pieces of systems everywhere, science, ethics, everything laid waste. Kant feared losing science to empirical philosophy, and so sought a way to rectify what he saw as the truth behind the independent objective world and the imposition of the subjective. In Hume, these two things are forever separate, and as a result, man's knowledge is only his, so to speak. It cannot be attributed in a meaningful way to the external. Kant's goal in criti uh, critical idealism is to bridge that gap somewhat for himself and for a rational ordered system. Unlike many philosophers, though, this was not in an attempt to rectify a notion of God, which commonly belies objective philosophies. Rather, he wanted to keep the notion intact that we can know objectively true things about the world, the laws of physics and whatnot, despite or even because of the rational ordering of the mind. To do this requires first a stable backdrop, space, the external ordering, and time, the internal ordering. Interesting that these must work in conjunction. For example, if you look at an object, like pick up a book or a piece of paper or something near you and put it out in front of you a bit. There's a stable background that remains fixed and unmoved. Well, something might move, the cat or the dog at your feet, your own feet, whatever. And the paper sits spatially above, so to speak, that backdrop. But that wouldn't be separable and distinct unless there was some movement, which is measured temporally. Look at one corner, then look at the other corner. Your eye took time to get from one to the other, no matter how fast, which registered change against that physical backdrop. While space and time provide for sensibility, this sense experience, the mind must make understanding from those senses. So given the dynamics of space and time at play, Kant recognized that there are certain relationships that could be ascertained from those two givens, and this becomes the categories of the mind that are foundational to his idealism. They are grouped into four. Quali uh, quantity, which includes universality, particularity, singularity. Quality, which includes affirmative, the negative, and the infinite. Relation, which includes substance and accident, community and reciprocity, and cause and effect, preserving it now from Hume's destruction. And finally, modality, which includes possibility, existence, and necessity. Based on this ordering, then, of experience, Kant argues that we can make two types of epistemic judgments. Those regarding phenomenal reality, that which is the constructed understanding of external reality based on our objective and particular experience, and judgments of the noumenal reality. And this is where his philosophy gets really sticky. I'd like to model this one in my classroom with the use of a child's toy. I remember back before I bought this thing how much mental gymnastics I had to get do to get my students to actually get anywhere with Kant. Uh, well, I guess we're going to do something of that here, though, because I can't exactly show you through, you know, this sound right now what it is that this looks like. But if you Google on your device right now, wooden shape sorting cube, you'll get a picture of what it is that I do. I think that every kid probably has one of these at some point. I know I did. Eleanor certainly has had one. Uh, but I bought one of these things to sit in my classroom a few years ago so that when I was getting to talk to, about Kant, 
uh, and I'd have to explain him. This was the best version of any kind of incredibly reductive discussion of Kantian idealism I could possibly get. I'm sure he rolls over in his grave every time I do this. It's probably criminal levels of simplification, but it seems to give some visualization. So the mind is this cube itself with all the shapes cut out. The great thing about this one is the one in my classroom actually has 12 different cutout shapes. It's, it's perfect representation of the categories. So here we are with this cube. You dump out all the blocks, it's empty. The blocks themselves are objects of experience, out there in space and distinct from each other by temporal element. So here we get to keep the notion that the mind is absent of ideas at birth. There is nothing in the cube to start with. So John Locke's tabula rasa, Hume's empiricism stays satisfied here. Ideas are not present other than through experience. The mind must interact with time and space and objects for any understanding at all to exist, any ideas or concepts. But precepts, perceptions, can and do now have existence. The objects are there. The reality out there is there. So phenomenal experience then becomes melded in a way with the mind. But this only occurs because the mind is ordered similarly enough to the reality in order to receive this. This is the idea of taking a block, finding its corresponding cutout, and putting it in. And now the mind has gained the data of the phenomenal experience and can begin to build ideas and concepts from it. The more blocks enter and all of a sudden you can start doing things in the mind. So like Hume suggests in his philosophy, impressions and impressions together can build concepts and sometimes even competing concepts. And all of a sudden you get individual unique understandings because the experiences themselves may be different or the way in which they're ordered and interpreted in the mind may then be different. The amount of certain experiences, the conjunction of the experiences, etc. So we look inside the cube and note that there is a green square, a green circle, and a red rhombus. What combinations can be built with this? Well, I can start to further categorize four-sided objects versus no-sided objects. Or I can do green things uh, versus red things. That red rhombus, though, really messes up my pattern. It just throws the whole thing off. I can, can't exactly throw it out of my mind, though. Once it's perceived, it's there. But I can bury it underneath the green things and pretend it's not there. And all of a sudden, I'm the prisoner in the cave who, once released, doesn't like what he sees and sits back down and stares at the shadows. Or Kierkegaard's demonic. But anyway, there still gets to be variability. The uniqueness of subjective understanding that clearly happens in our experiences talking to other subjective beings while still leaving the necessary objective foundation of any sharing of that reality at all. All subjective beings, then, have the same ordering of the mind and receive the phenomenal in the same way because the phenomenal reality must match the ordering of the mind for any reception of it to occur. The blocks must be shaped like the cutouts in the box or they aren't getting in. Which brings us to the problem with the noumenal. Unlike the phenomenal, the noumenal isn't cut to be ordered that way. In fact, if you really think about it, the blocks are kind of like the shadows or imprints of real things, and those real things stay there. It's like picture of an object. The picture is good enough to make something out of it, but it's not the thing itself. So then we've got some major issues. Well, for one, and many philosophers took Kant to task for this, there's no guarantee that the noumenal really exists, and m many weren't satisfied by his attempts to explain that. 
And also we have to think about what's included in this label. God, of course, which means we get at what God is through negation. Basically, we know what God isn't. So in a way, we start to focus on in on what maybe he is, though we never can get it objectively like that, which leaves lots of room for error and problem. Uh, think about a number line. We can throw out everything but from zero to one, and even in that, there's infinite there. Probably the most important numinal reality, though, is the box itself. The blocks get into the box, but that's it. In order to understand the box, it has to only be able to recognize what it does, what passes through it, so to speak. But the box cannot fit within itself, and thus cannot understand itself. It's like a snake eating its own tail. If that's the case, and we blow this metaphor back outward, the self, the word I, we use to represent ourselves, is a pretty empty word. We have no idea what the self is, only what it can do as a result of the categories. We cannot access it in and of itself. To give you a bit more of an example, Hi, my name is Stacy Cabrera, and I teach high school English and philosophy. My name is arbitrary. I didn't even choose it. And I teach high school English and philosophy, which is what I do. Neither of those descriptors are me. Pictures of me aren't me. Physical descriptions, material properties, are they really me? I could change my hair color. Hell, I could lose a hand, although let's hope that doesn't happen, but you get where I'm going. And I'd still be me. I lose my memory, and I'm still somehow me. Well, I don't know there. Uh, but regardless, the self is an elusive concept based on the results of a process of understanding and not an object of understanding itself. As a result, Kant claims that we have to take some of the noumenal, transcendental realities, God, the cosmos, freedom, immortality, ideals, the consciousness, all of that by faith. I, I honestly have no idea if any of that made any sense. Uh, I took a class strictly on the critique of pure reason as a master's student, and it was hard. Really hard. The paper I wrote for that one was a pretty crazy process, too on the transcendental deduction of his B edition. Yeah, there's two editions to this thing, and one is notably harder than the other. Which gets into this whole empty consciousness of the word I in our descriptions of self. And honestly, I read my own paper now and I think, wow, that sounds really good, but what? <laughs> it's such a difficult text. So if you got anything out of the last several minutes, awesome! Kantian philosophy is really hard. That's why I have to do so much reduction of it for my classes to get anywhere at all. It's funny, too, because Kant wasn't super happy that people didn't understand his philosophy. He thought it was pretty straightforward. Uh, when contemporaries confused his stuff, he wrote a piece called The Prolegomena, which some people believe was kind of like Kantian philosophy for dummies kind of thing, where he could say, if you can't get this, well, then you're a moron, but people didn't get it, so yeah. All in all, with the epistemic part of Kantian philosophy, though, we can conclude that there is some real and some true knowledge of the world available to us, and it is shared common knowledge between us by virtue of those shared structures. It's pretty limited, though. But at least it gives us the ability to have something shared, a foundation that can be built upon, and we get biology and chemistry and physics back, since those laws are based in observation and cause and effect, which is now in the world and not just a product of the mind. Take that, Hume! So God, for Kant, must be taken on faith, but objectivity is essentially, he thinks, proven in his philosophy. It happens without the necessity of even proving God's existence, and is independent of that notion. And in a way, God then becomes beholden to that objectivity too. This plays a role in how he takes all this basis for understanding and then prescribes action based on it. 
Kant's moral philosophies are spread across a few works, including the Critique of Practical Reason and the Groundwork for the Metaphysics of Morals. It's a deontological system, emphasizing obligation to moral law, objective, and metaphysically superseding the individual. Like the epistemology establishes, uh, there are objective truths to be perceived in and through the world, and thus he extrapolates that laws, and not just physical, but also social, intellectual, political, and moral laws, are attainable and ought to be followed to their ends. Obligation to that law by virtue of epistemic truth then trumps personal good or social utility, which lies at the basis of a lot of other moral philosophies. This ought, his favorite word, he claims is evident through the use of reason, intuition, and moral sense. As a result, reason sits at the heart <laughs> of discerning moral action from those which are amoral. Ultimately, there is really only one moral obligation, which is what he calls the categorical imperative. This imperative, the moral maxim, is derived from the concept of duty and good in and of themselves as ends. It is unconditional and then followed regardless of personal will. There are caveats to deciding what fits the moral maxim or things that must be satisfied. First, if an action isn't done for any sense of duty, whether it be to self or others, it's not a moral action. So if that is satisfied, the question then is whether or not the intention behind the act is pure. If there is thought of the consequences or the utility to oneself, and note that utility and duty towards oneself are different things, it's not pure and thus not satisfied. So if that's satisfied, if it's done for the duty of others without thinking about the results to oneself, the final consideration regards how a person feels when carrying out the action as the time of the consequences and how those will result. Kant argues for three formulations. First, the universal law. That maxims be chosen as though they should hold the universal laws of nature. Second, the end in itself in which the rational being must be treated never as a mere means, which is a pretty common sentiment across a lot of ethical systems. And finally, probably his most famous of autonomy, or to act as if your maxim should serve at the same time as the universal law, as a member of the universal realm of ends. Because nothing is above universal law, it becomes one's duty to follow the maxims, which combines the first two formula. So it becomes an objective-based system in that actions that sh occur should be thought of as universal and applicable to all people in the same situation and can be judged as moral, immoral, or amoral. At the base is consideration, thought, deep reflection before an action occurs. This is not really a results-oriented system, and much of the consideration of an act's morality is in the intent, the thought, not the consequences or the results of the action. So Kant's philosophy kind of puts a bit of a cramp in Spandrel's style. He doesn't really need for right and wrong to exist, but it's not really for right and wrong that Spandrel wants an absolute. In fact, the mere mention of the word duty might allude a bit to deontology, just from the perspective of maybe an immoral maxim that he's playing into. There's something much deeper and more causal, and in the next few episodes we'll start to dig a little deeper into what his deal is. For now, we'll recognize that his games of sin are an elaborate plot beyond just being narcissistic psychopathology. But speaking of narcissistic psychopaths, we gotta back up a bit and talk about the real nar narcissistic psychopath in the book. Spandrel does have a companion to commiserate with in misery being given in the opposite sex. We've seen glimpses of Walter providing a little bit of this role for Marjorie, which is explored in depth in episode 1, 
But what becomes much more clear here in, a, in chapter 7, after he's found Lucy at the party and they decide to leave and meet Rampion and Spanrolds and Bisas, is that Walter isn't nearly as good as he thinks at that game. Marjorie is weak and sick, running from a cruel and obnoxious husband. She's incredibly vulnerable. From afar, the chasing game was a fun game, because chasing a married woman, and not just a married woman, but a woman married to a priest, that's a pretty solid accomplishment in that game, I guess. But now that he's won her, eh, time for a new game and a new prize. So now he's found himself a chase and a once married woman whose husband or cousin, yeah, that used to be a thing with rich families once upon a time, he died and she's been milking that whole situation for the last two years just to keep people at a healthy distance. But it's not even that that makes Lucy unattainable. It's because, like many of the characters recognize about her, she's cool and detached and modern in a warped feministic kind of way. Some of that is on display at the tantamount party, when she gets into a little argument with her mom's old tryst, John Bidlake, when she questions, while looking at his famous painting, The Bathers, whether he finds women so profoundly silly as he paints them. Spandrel later will remark that she loves like a man, in the sense that she can be detached in both heart and head. She's described as being a combination of her parents, in that she likes to get a rise out of people. But unlike her mother, she does it with the scientific detachment of her father, a good old-fashioned psychopath. For her, right and wrong aren't very much important. All there is is doing, having all the experience. But really for her, it's mitigation of boredom and loneliness. It's not a need for closeness or friendship or love that she has. It's fawning adoration. It feeds the narcissism. Once Walter and Lucy leave the party, it's pretty clear Walter's met his match and is in no position to take on Lucy, who certainly has control over the situations they're involved in. The cab scene is really less an exercise in the cat and mouse game of courtship than it is about power dynamics. But we learned something about Lucy in this, too. As they sit there in the cab, she's pushed herself up against the dark corner away from him. He's trying, as he might, to get her to yield to him a little, but he has no idea what she wants or likes. Unlike his situation where Marjorie, where he can be like Lucy and all detached and removed and independent, he acts like, as Lucy says, a whipped dog. Her description of him, the way she talks about him and thinks about him, is super emasculating here. How tiresome, she reflected, these men who imagined that nobody had ever been in love before. All the same, she liked him. He was attractive. No, attractive wasn't the word. Attractive as a possible lover is just what he wasn't. Appealing was more like it. An appealing lover? It wasn't exactly her style, but she liked him. There was something very nice about him. Ugh, and nice is the word you use when you don't really know what to say about somebody. It ends up not really being nice at all. Besides, he was clever. He could be a pleasant companion. Ooh, friend-zoned much. And tiresome as it was, his lovesickness did at least make him very faithful. That for Lucy was important. She was afraid of loneliness and needed her cavalier servants in constant attendance. Walter attended with a dog-like fidelity. But why did he look so like a whipped dog sometimes? So abject. What a fool. Working herself up into anger, she starts openly mocking Walter and then takes him by the wrist and straight up digs her nails into his skin. Who does that? Instead of anger, though, Walter basically attacks her with lust, and Lucy's response is interesting. He seized her by the shoulders and began to kiss her savagely. Anger had quickened his desire. His kisses were a vengeance. 
Lucy shut her eyes and abandoned herself unresistingly, limply. Little premonitions of pleasure shot with a kind of panic flutter, like fluttering moths through her skin. And suddenly, sharp fingers seemed to pluck pizzicato at the fiddle strings of her nerves. Walter could feel her whole body starting involuntarily within his arms, starting as though they had been suddenly hurt. Kissing her, he found himself wondering if she had expected him to react this way to her provocation, if she had hoped he would. He took her slender neck in his two hands, his thumbs were on her windpipe. He pressed gently. One day, he said between his clenched teeth, I shall strangle you. Like, what? <laughs> and the worst part is that she likes that. She issues him another dare with her well. I mean, no one asks you well unless they're trying to bait you into something, but he's too dumb to recognize the connection and what he just did to her and the reaction to it, and any forward action he should make. So he starts begging her to turn the cab around and go back to her place, and she just rolls her eyes. He missed the message. She wanted him to take control, and he failed to do so. So instead, they get out of the cab and go into Sabisa's, and she makes him sit in the middle of conversations he doesn't want to have with people he doesn't want to be with for another three hours. Totally tortures him. All he had to do, though, was say, Hey, cabbie, go to Bruton Street. And he'd have gotten what he wanted. But because he acted like a whip dog, well, you know. It shows something interesting about the kind of person Lucy is, too, because Lucy isn't the only person in the world like this. Here is a woman of control. She plays dominance and preys on others. You can't experiment without control. So she's always got a handle on everyone and everything, including herself. She's great at surrendering, just enough to experience, but remain detached enough not to lose herself or the power. Here, there's a bit of an illusion happening. Walter takes control, and I wish you could see my scare quotes here and the eye-rolling, uh, but it's not really his control to take. She gives it to him, and in a way, she still keeps it. Nothing happens here that she doesn't want to happen. His violent seizing of her is calculated. Walter isn't doing anything. He's leashed. Impossible, says Lucy, and she steps out of the cab. If he behaved like a whip dog, he could be treated like one. Yikes. But of course he doesn't know or see any of this, which is what makes him an interesting victim. And honestly, as an audience member, I don't know that any of us will actually feel too bad for him. After all, he's doing a light version of this kind of thing to Marjorie, so it's funny that he doesn't actually see through it here. But he's a lightweight novice in the ring with a heavyweight champion at this whole manipulation thing. He's in way over his head, and is basically about to get crushed. And we'll all watch the drama from afar, like a wreck on the freeway, or, you know, all of those bad reality dramas that everyone hates the people there on it, but can't stop watching. So really, Point Counterpoint is just a soap opera with fancy language and some philosophy. It's human, for sure. You've got the dissimilars of Rampion and Spandrel talking about similar things, revolutions, proper living, the soul and the body and all that. But you also have some similars in this one. We've looked at Walter and Lucy playing similar games of power over people. Well, we've also have the same kind of power games being played by Lucy and Spandrel, too. If you look at Lucy's game over Walter, although we aren't giving any motive here, hint because there isn't one, it sounds very similar to what Spandrel describes in his plot with Harriet. Coax them into trust, exert yourself in status and age, because Lucy is actually several years older than Walter. And personality, we make them do what we want, experiment. We don't know if Lucy's endgame is consciously destructive like Spandrel's is, which may offer us a reason to question motive. 
Spandrels goes a step beyond and actually has reason, even if it's a gross and ugly reason, where Lucy's may actually just be nothing other than self-amusement that this offers her. In fact, later on, after Walter finally gets the courage to leave because he isn't going to get what he wants, Spandrel and Lucy continue to have a conversation on their way out of Sabisa's, which ends with Spandrel questioning Lucy's intention, and particularly the ethicality of it. And don't get me wrong, Spandrel isn't concerned that she's being mean to Walter and chastising her for it. He's just asked a poignant question here. But if none of them are either right or wrong, which is what, he says, Lucy seems to feel, what's the point? She answers, fun. But then Spandrel makes an astute and personal observation. They could never be exciting if you didn't feel they were wrong. Some people can only realize goodness by offending against it. And there lies Spandrel's operating hypothesis, what drives the method of his discovery. He is playing at a negative moral maxim. I don't think Kant would approve, though. Right and wrong are necessary here in order for his test to work, but unlike testing from a positive, do the right thing, get rewards, he's testing from the opposite, do bad things, reap the consequences. Why? We'll have to wait to find out. And we'll leave it at that for today. Thanks for checking back in. Linked in the episode's information, I've included some of the resources used for today's episode if you'd like to explore a little further, and you can always contact me via the linked Twitter account for the show. I'm happy to answer questions, which may get exact- actually featured in future episodes. Uh, if you like what you heard and you want to hear more of this kind of thing, subscribe on Spotify or other supporting podcast platforms. Check back next week for the next installment in the series, where we'll be discussing the next few chapters of Point Counterpoint, more of the Lucy Walter saga, and we'll have to get into burlap, I guess. <laughs> Yay. Looking forward to viewing the dynamics through the contrasts of stoicism and hedonism as well. So see you next time, and have a great week. I'm Stacy Cabrera, and this was Fill in the Details.